Um, how many of you are Netflix junkies? Any of you watch Netflix? All right. Anybody not know what Netflix is? We need to have an explanation. We can have some in the front row over here explain to you what that is. Netflix is it's kind of the, the, um, the poor man's way, not really the poor man's way, but it's the cheap way of going through a series of television shows, particularly. Now, they've got their own shows that they create as well. But if you don't want to watch as they're occurring, you can sit and you can binge watch as many episodes as you want. You can get through a lot of different seasons in a couple different settings. Right now, Lindsay and I are in the midst of watching a show called Madam Secretary about a, a lady that plays the Secretary of State. Um, th- I think the show originally aired on CBS. We're in season one right now. We just finished a, another show. And before we start a new season, we do a little bit of research. She does most of the research. I just listen. Um, she's the researcher in our family. And it's because we, we want to make sure that we're going to invest 30, 40, 50, maybe even more hours into this show, we're not just going to waste our time and just pick whatever they suggest for us, right? And so I just saw, by the way, we we finished last night, I think episode 10, and they just celebrated their 100th episode. So I don't know if we'll ever finish it before Jesus comes back or not, um, but that's where we are. So we wanted to make sure that we were watching something that was worthy of, 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 of watching that amount of time there. So I did some research the other day, and I wanted to see what were the top 10 um, TV shows in 2018. You think you can name some of those? I want you to talk to the person next to you. See if you can name two of the top TV shows in 2018, this past year. How on top of the current culture are you? All right, let's see how well you did. I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Four of the top 12 were actually NFL shows that were on CBS or NBC. I took all those out. So if you said it, you don't get credit. That's not a TV show, all right? That's, I'm talking about a series that's on. Let's see if you got them. Here we go. Number 10, The Voice. Anybody, anybody watch The Voice here? I see some of you. Where's Cliff Bailey? Is Cliff up here? I see him uh, talking about that all the time. Um, and I, I believe that wasn't Brother Billy's uh, granddaughter, one of the top eight, is that right? Reagan that was in there. So that was good. Number nine, NCIS. But this is the particular one in New Orleans. We're coming back with NCIS again. Number eight, Blue Bloods. Anybody watch Blue Bloods? Is that a show about Kentucky basketball fans or something? It's <laughs> kind of what I thought when I saw that. That was number eight. Number seven, Bull. Don't know what else. That's all I know. Number six, The Good Doctor. Where's Pat Thornton? Is Pat in here? Pat, I know you like that show as well as my wife. She loves that show as well, The Good Doctor. Number five, Young Sheldon. Young, isn't that from Big Bang Theory? Is that? I've never seen that show. It's number five. Number four is NCIS. So that gets number, what is it, nine and number four. Number three, This Is Us. Anybody still watch that show? We watched it, and Lindsay said, it's too depressing. We cry after every episode. She cries. I don't cry, right? I'm a man. Um, Why are we going to keep watching this show? That was number three. Number two, Roseanne, no longer in syndication, I believe. And number one, The Big Bang Theory. Anybody watch that show? All right. You must be a pagan if you watch it, right? It's got to be about evolution. Just kidding. It's not about, I guess. I've never seen that show. So as I was looking at those, the top 10 shows in 2018, I began to wonder, what is the top read book of the Bible? What do you think it is? What's the most read book of the Bible? Psalms is the right answer, if you guessed that. 
But the second answer is the book of John. So if you guessed John, that's correct. That's where we're going to be. If you want to go and open your Bibles to the book of John in just a few moments. But why is the book of John so popular among Christians? The book of John is usually where pastors or evangelists will direct someone that's new in the faith to say, hey, the book of John's a good place to start if you want to know who Jesus is and what his message was when he was here on earth. But before we jump into the book of John, I want to give a little bit of background information, not only about John, but also the four books of our New Testament that make up the gospel. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, I think it's always important before we as a corporate body or you as an individual jump into a a particular book of the Bible that you do some background, that you understand the audience and the purpose. And and we're going to show a little bit of that. But as you know, each of the four Gospels, again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the same story of Jesus, but they're writing to a different audience. And they also, they're writing from a different perspective because they all have a different background. So let's look at the four real quick. First, we have Matthew. Who was Matthew writing to? He was writing to the Jews. That was his audience. His main focus was Jesus as the promised Messiah. Makes sense, doesn't it? If he's writing to the Jews, of course, he's going to talk about Jesus being the fulfillment of all the prophecies and being the promised Messiah. His favorite reference of Jesus, his most commonly used reference of Jesus, is the son of David. Again, makes sense. If he's writing to the Jews, he's trying to show that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies, um, that he would refer to, Jesus would refer to himself as the son of David. How about Mark? Mark was writing particularly to the Romans. His focus was on Jesus as a prophet. And this favorite reference of Jesus was the Son of Man. Move on to Luke. Luke was writing to the educated Greeks of his day. Makes sense. As a doctor, he would have been an educated man, so he's writing to the Greeks. And he is referring to Jesus. His focus is on Jesus as the perfect man. Which, of course, if he's the perfect man, it makes sense that his favorite reference of Jesus would be the Son of Adam. You may remember we talked about this several months ago that Paul often refers to Jesus as not the perfect Adam, but the what? Not the son of Adam, but the second Adam. Okay, so he's the fulfillment of all that Adam, where Adam failed, Jesus fulfilled. And John, where we're going to be, John is writing both to Jews and Gentiles. He's kind of writing to everyone here. And his focus is that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. That he's both. He's fully God and fully man, and his favorite reference of Jesus is going to be the Son of God. So, what a gift we have that we have these four Gospels. That when you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you put them together and you read them in context, we have a full and complete picture of who Jesus is and his love that he has for us. To me, when I look at the fact that we have four different Gospels, written by four different people from four different backgrounds to four different audiences, and yet they tell the same story of Jesus. To me, that's even further validation that Jesus really is who he says he is. It's not just one person saying, hey, I'm making these claims. This is what I saw. These are four different people from four different backgrounds speaking to four different groups of people, and they tell the same story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one who was to come and who is to come and who is dead, risen, and raised to life. Now, the four Gospels, they're taking us on the same journey of Jesus' life. Of course, they're telling it from their own perspective. 
Why? Because they come from a different background. They, they come from a different background and they, they're, they're making their case, if you will, to their own specific audience that they're writing to. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as a fancy word here as the synoptic gospels. That's a fancy word. All that means is those three gospels that they literally contain so much of the common material. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot of the same material that's in there, and the word synoptic actually means with the same vision. Now, the climax of, of all the Gospels, Matthew through John, they, of course, are what? The cross and the resurrection. That's the climax of the Gospel story in each and every one of the books. But the synoptic Gospels in these first three that we have, they especially are recording what Jesus said and what He did. That's the focus Let's make sure that we tell in detail, this is what he said, this is what he did. Now what sets John apart, what makes John a little bit more unique, if you will, is that John's gospel was actually written 20 to 30 years later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You say, why does that matter? Well, that matters because as we read this, we're going to see that John's not so concerned about going through exactly every detail. In fact, he doesn't start where all the others start. You don't have the birth narrative in the book of John. Instead of being so focused on what Jesus said and what he did, John's focused on what did Jesus, what, mean? What was meant by these words? That's what sets John apart from the first three Gospels. John's going to particularly emphasize the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. So now hear me on this. While John is by no means more important than the first three Gospels, they're all of equal importance. It is definitely the most unique of the four Gospels. What do I mean by that's most, most unique? It's the most unlike the other three Gospels that we have. Now let me warn you for a second here. We're going to be in the book of John for a long time. You say, how long? Through the rest of this year, we're going to be in the book of John. You say, oh my word, why is it going to take you so long to get through this book? There is so much in the book of John for us to get through, to understand that we don't want to just pass through this and miss the importance of what Jesus is talking about. I believe that if we do nothing else this year, during this 30 minutes of worship on Sunday mornings that, that I, I get to have, other than help us understand what is in the book of John and appreciate the book of John, I truly believe this will be one of our most beneficial teaching years of ministry that we've had. That's just my personal opinion. Now, if you've been with us for the past four and a half years, you know that there's one particular style of teaching that I prefer, that I like to do, one particular style, and, and, and that's to take a, a particular text or a group of texts and to teach through that text, particularly to take a book of the Bible and just walk through that book to make sure that we understand it in context and then we can apply it to our lives. There's a, a big fancy word that, that's called expository preaching. That's kind of what I was taught. That's what I like to do. And you say, well, what's expository preaching? Well, expository preaching, according to Al Mohler, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, he, he defines it this way. Expository preaching is that mode of Christian preaching that takes, as it's here it is, central purpose, the presentation and application of the text of the Bible. All other issues, all other concerns are subordinated to the, here it is, the central task of presenting the biblical text. Let me water that down for you. 
In expository preaching, we preach the Bible and the Bible alone. Not preaching our opinions, not preaching our thoughts, not our desires, not taking different topics and saying, oh, this is a hot button issue, let's take that topic. Not, not looking at, at what, what the world is going through, not looking at political opinions, not even preaching denominational doctrine. It's saying that this is our main source of scripture and we are gonna look at scripture and scripture alone because this stands alone and this is all that we need to live by. Now that doesn't mean that we can't preach a topic every now and then. Of course we can. It doesn't mean that we can't have illustrations or that we don't wanna look at what other people say or commentaries. It just means that we are going to make the Bible the main source of what we are going to study and how we're going to study it. Two important reminders before we jump into John here. I think it's important that we know this before we start studying the book of John, but I hope that this will help you as well in your own personal Bible study as you are studying God's Word, hopefully on a daily or regular basis. The first reminder is that the Bible is holy. You say, well, duh, we knew that already. And it's an important reminder that we understand this book, that we have the privilege, that many don't have the privilege of having this book written in their language, that this is the ultimate authority, the Word of God, that as we hold the Bible in our hands or on your phones, whatever it might be, the Bible reflects God's heart. The Bible reflects God's mind. The Bible reflects God's will for the world and also for our own lives. My prayer is that as a church family and that as individuals, we never treat this Bible flippantly. May we never put this on the same plane of any other text or say, oh, that's equal to something else. This word stands alone. The Bible is holy. Not only is it holy, the second reminder that, that I hope that we always keep is that we need to understand the Bible in context first. Then seek to apply it to our lives. Been with us for a while, you know I harp on that a lot. We've got to make sure we understand what was the author saying in that, in that context, in that time, because if we don't understand it in the proper context, then, then we will misinterpret it. And if we misinterpret what the Bible is saying, then we do what? We don't apply it to our lives correctly. We can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. You can go on Twitter today, and there are lots of preachers that can make the Bible fit whatever they want it to say. Whatever their political opinion is, whatever the hot-button topic is, you can find a verse of Scripture, and you can twist it and say it and mean it for what you want it to say if you take it out of context. That's why I encourage you, whenever you're um, studying the Bible on your own, to use a study Bible. Use a study Bible that has notes in it. And this is, I'm going back to what a message I preached several years ago where I said, this is how I study God's word. Before I start a book of the Bible, the first thing I do is I'm going to take that study Bible and I'm going to look at the first page where the, the author, where it gives me information about the author. It tells me about the background. It tells me about the author, who he's writing to, what the purpose is, what, what are the key verses, what are the principles, the themes in there. But then also, there's some important notes that should be at the bottom of that study Bible that help you understand what's going on there. So my encouragement is, I, if you're taking a chapter, if you're reading through the New Testament with us, then I would read the chapter, then I would read all the notes, then read the chapter again. That helps us keep the Bible in context and understand what's going on in Scripture. But why do I feel that it's not only beneficial, but it's essential that we as a church family teach God's word in this expository manner. 
Well, Paul, he urged Timothy. Remember, he called Timothy as what? His son in the faith. He said, Timothy, here is your task as a preacher. It's very simple. Your task involves three words. You found it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Timothy, your job is to preach the word. That's your job. Preach the word. Earlier, Paul had assured the Corinthians that as he's coming, he's trying to tell the Corinthians, look, I and all of my friends who are coming, they're not like other people who have come behind me. He defines those people who've come behind him like so many peddlers of God's word. I like the way the New Living Translation translates this verse. It says, you see, we are not like the many hucksters. Isn't that a fun word to say? Not like many of the hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority. Why? Knowing this is a high authority, that God is watching us. In other words, Paul says that whenever I handle God's word, whenever I'm teaching God's word, I pray that I do it in two ways. I pray that I do it with purity, and I pray that I do it with honesty. Not putting in my thoughts or my opinions, but may I teach the word purely, and may I do it in all honesty and sincerity. Later, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That word there, to handle, it infers that Timothy was to drive a straight path through the word of God, that he wasn't to deviate to the left or to the right. In other words, Timothy, preach the word. Don't add anything else to it. Preach what it says. Later, Paul tells Timothy, here's the overarching theme of the Bible. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So friends, with all that information, why in the world would we not want to teach the Bible in an expository manner? If we believe that the Bible truly is breathed out by God, why would we go anywhere else for meaning or insight than straight to the one and only authority on God's heart, his mind, and his will? See, my goal on Sunday mornings, I have two goals as I aim to faithfully preach God's word. As we preach every Sunday morning, my two goals are, number one, that I would preach God's word in a way that, A, you would know what it says. And B, that not only you would know what it says, but I would preach it in a way that it can be understood. We don't need to use fancy words or language. Let's make sure that we know what the text says and that we know how we can understand and apply it to our lives. Bottom line, my goal is not to add anything to the Bible, nor do I want to take anything away. Preach the word. What does the text say? That was a long introduction to, pro, to try to prove to you why I believe the best way for our congregation to grow in God's grace and wisdom and knowledge and understanding of what God wants us to do is to make sure that we teach the Bible in the proper form, that we avoid the temptation of just focusing on Bible verses that we like and what? Avoiding those we don't like. We like to do that sometimes, don't we? Oh, as parents, there are certain verses I love to quote to my children and then there are some that I don't want to look at when it's called what I'm supposed to be as a dad and as a husband. We like to, to pick and cherry pick sometimes. And as we preach through a, a text, particularly through a book of the Bible, it helps us avoid that temptation. It also um, helps us avoid just um, choosing 
certain verses and taking those verses out of context. So with that said, I'm so excited about beginning this journey of looking through the book of John here. It's my hope that if you're here consistently throughout the rest of this year, that by the time we get through John chapter 21, that you'll have a notebook full of notes that will help you not only understand, but appreciate one of the most precious gifts we have been given in the book of John written about Jesus by one of his very closest friends. So let's begin looking at the book of John, and we'll begin by understanding a little bit about the author. Um, again, what do we know about John? Before we know what he says, let's, let's learn a little bit about him. Just some really 10,000-foot view, um, some facts about John. We know that John was an unschooled fisherman. We also know that John's favorite nickname, if you will, if you'll let me use that phrase there, was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he loved to be referred. And he would refer to himself that way, that I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, how do we know that he was an unschooled person, that he was uneducated? Well, if you were with us a few weeks ago, when we were at Acts, remember there's the story of John who was with Peter, and they were before the Sanhedrin, which was just the Jewish high ruling council. Think like Supreme Court. And they were teaching about Jesus, and, and they said, hey, you've got to stop this. You cannot keep telling people about Jesus. Stop doing all this. And they say, hey, well, you do what you must, but we can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And listen to what it says about John in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were, listen to these next words, uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized, I love this phrase, I pray this is said about me. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, the fact that John was able to speak so boldly, whether it was there or whether it was other places, the fact that he's able to write one of the most intimate portraits of Jesus, it's not written in such a way that we say, oh, what an incredible person John is. It's written in such a way that we would know he was an uneducated man. What a powerful God he serves that the Holy Spirit worked in and through him to produce John's life. And praise God, that same Holy Spirit lives in you and I if we've trusted Christ as our Savior and He can transform us. No matter what our education is, no matter what our background is, no matter what our socioeconomic level is, we can be used by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And at first, you, you can look at that phrase that John uses to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you're not careful, you can say, isn't that pretty prideful? He likes to refer to himself almost like, hey, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Don't forget that, guys. But actually, when you do a little bit of digging, you see it's not a prideful statement that he's making. It's actually the exact opposite. It's actually one of, of humility. See, John recognized that he was... Um, a man full of unrighteousness, that he was full of, of unhealthy things in his past. And the fact that Jesus loved him was more important than anything else in his life. The fact that Jesus loved him, it truly became the core of his existence. Friends, to John, the only thing that was special about him was Jesus. 
That's the only thing that you need to know. If John were here today, say, listen, I could tell you about my job. I could tell you about my family. I could tell you about all that I've done. But here's the only thing that's special about me. Jesus loved me. And I wonder, could we say the same thing in our own life? Does the fact that Jesus loves us in spite of our past, in spite of our present, in spite of all of our unrighteousness, does it matter so much that we'd say, out of everything in my life, all of my accomplishments, the only thing that makes me worthy, the only thing that's going to matter in the end, the only thing that's going to get me into heaven when I stand before God, my Creator, it's not my accomplishments, it's not my trophies, it's not my good works. The only thing that matters is that Jesus loves me. And that's what he wanted to be referred to as. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's like he could never get over it. And I pray you and I never get over it as well. May we never lose this sense of awe that Jesus loves me. And we also know that John, as well as his brother James, that they partnered together with Peter and they were fishing partners. That was their trade. And they worked in Galilee. Together, John, along with his brother James, were called the what? The sons of, who knows? Thunder. Where's that? Okay, sons of thunder. Probably referring to their quick temper. Now, a lot of guys are glad that, man, God can use a man with quick temper, right? Isn't it incredible to think that God willingly chose, before the creation of the world, he chose that John, who he knew had a quick temper, that he would use him that he would transform his life and he would write an extensive work about God's love. Friends, if John's life is not a testimony of how God can use anyone, I don't know what is. The fact that John was known as part of the sons of thunder and his temper, and yet God uses him to write this gospel, that should give all of us hope that God does want to and will use you and me no matter what our tendencies are. What we know is that because of his own transformation that occurred in John's life, we see that I think this is why John focuses so much on the transformation of other people in his gospel. Think about the people that he mentions, that he tells the stories of, and each of them have a story of transformation. It begins, you look at Nicodemus in chapter 3. Look at the transformation in his life. Then you have the Samaritan woman, the blind man, Lazarus, Peter. It's a story of transformation. I think he's he's talking about this. He emphasizes this because he saw it happen in his own life. Now, when does John begin following Jesus? John begins following Jesus as he's introduced to John the Baptist, who proclaims that here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who comes and takes away the sins of the world. And at that point, John becomes a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And as we read through the Gospels, we see that Peter and James and John, they actually become Jesus' closest friends. You know, he had the disciples, but he had this select group, these three individuals that he was so close to. Church family, that's why I think it's so important that we take time to understand this book. I think it's, it's worthy of our time to slow down and to read and to understand what is it that John was writing about Jesus. See, whenever you read a biography... Usually, one of your first questions is, well, how did that person know who they're writing about, right? You don't want to just, well, I never met him, never talked to him, never. No, no, no. 
usually the more accurate is the closer that person was to who they're writing about. So the fact that John, I believe, was Jesus' closest friend means that we need to know about it. You say, Blake, why are you saying he was probably his closest friend? Well, who is it that Jesus asked to take care of his mother when he's on the cross? John. I think that Jesus had this personal walk with John. Now, finally, we also know that, that John is not the only, the book of John is not the only book that, that he authored in the Bible. He had four other books. He had 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he also wrote Revelation towards the, the latter part of his life as he was exiled on the island of Patmos. All five of these books, the goal of all these books is to point to Jesus as the one and only Messiah, the one and only Savior, the only hope for the world. And also, his books serve as a reassurance that we have the final victory for those who are in Christ. So what was John's overarching goal? What's he trying to to convey in, in the book here? He's trying to convey more than just a biography. It's more than just telling the events of here's what happened and let me give you a timeline. We know that from the very last verse in the entire book of John, where it says this. It says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Isn't that unbelievable? In 33 years. He says, if I were to write everything that I saw happen, everything that Jesus did, I couldn't even contain all the books. It gives us hope for those that think you're going to be bored in heaven. No, 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 no. Can't wait to hear. So John says, my purpose is not writing a biography. My purpose in writing this isn't just to tell you stories and facts and figures about Jesus. No, his purpose is clearly stated in John chapter 20, verse 31. Here it is. Here's his purpose. But these are written so that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's why I've entitled this series, So That You May Believe. John had one aim, one focus, and that was so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If you're going to take the book of John and you want to divide it up into different sections, you see there's five natural different um, divisions that you can take the book of John. The first, we're going to be in for probably the next four weeks, and that's just what's called the prologue. That's verses 1 through 18. It's a brief section, but in this section, we have themes of Jesus' identity as well as themes of faith and unbelief. The second section begins in verse 19 of chapter 1 and goes all the way through uh, the end of chapter 12, and that's Jesus' public ministry. In these chapters, Jesus reveals himself to the world. We read about John the Baptist accepting and trusting Jesus. We read about others who trust Jesus and some who reject Jesus and choose not to follow him. It's also in this passage that in chapters 5 through 12 that we have the seven powerful I am statements of Jesus. We're going to dig into each of these I am statements and what we're going to see is that Jesus is revealing a little bit more of his identity through each and every one of these I am statements. The third section is chapters 13 through 17, and that's going to be Jesus ministering to his disciples. Jesus teaches his disciples, and he prepares them all along the way for what's to come, not on the cross and the resurrection, but also for the persecution that they will experience. All along the way while he's ministering to them, he's ministering, he's praying, and he's leading them for what's to come. 
The fourth section is in chapters 18 through 20. In those um, important chapters, we see Jesus' resur- excuse me, crucifixion and resurrection. See, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. In that, we see three things particularly. The first thing we see is who Jesus is. Second thing we see is what he accomplished on the cross. But third, we also see what he will do and his purpose, what he's going to continue to do even today. And then the fifth and final section is just chapter 21, and that's known as the epilogue. Now, the first 20 chapters, they present the truth about Jesus that leads to faith. And John actually goes one chapter, one section further than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The other gospels, they end with the resurrection. But but John takes it one step further, and we're given what I call two snapshots of people who are following Jesus and how Jesus works in the life of those who actually place their trust in him. I hope you can tell. I'm so excited about jumping into John chapter 1 in two weeks. Not next week, because next week we have our D now. I'm so excited about that. But in two weeks, we'll jump into chapter 1, and we're going to see this incredible journey that John takes us on, and we're going to understand more about Jesus. And what's so interesting is we're going to see it through the eyes, through the perspective of one of his very closest friends. But here's what we're going to do. Before I close and before I pray, I want you to write down three questions. I want us to apply this to our lives because information is good. And it's important, I told you, we've got to understand it in context. But all, if all we do here on Sunday morning is learn information, then it's not going to transform our lives. So how do we take what we learn, we read it in context, how do we apply it to our lives? How is this going to impact our daily life? See, John said that I have written these things, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So I want you to ask yourself over the, the rest of this week these three questions. Number one, do I desire knowledge that will lead to authentic life change? Do I desire knowledge or information that will lead to authentic life change? See, understanding who Jesus was, it led to a transformed life for John. It wasn't just information. It wasn't just knowledge. Be What he learned about Jesus, what he experienced, it transformed his life. So what about you? Over the course of the next few months, as you learn more information, as you receive more knowledge about this book, I hope and pray that you will desire that this knowledge, that this information will lead to authentic life change. See, once you've made the choice that you desire for God's word to transform your life, You desire to live your life according, not to the world standards, but you desire for your life to be lived according to God's standards. That leads to the second question. The second question is, what evidence does my life produce that I believe and follow Jesus? What evidence does my life produce that I believe and follow Jesus? It's one thing to call yourself a follower of Jesus. It's one thing to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. It's another thing for other people to know that you're a follower of Jesus by your actions, by your lifestyle, by your choices, by your words. And finally, in the book of John, every time that Jesus draws John near to him, every time he calls John, John responds. And as John responds, his life is transformed and he develops this personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. 
So I want to ask you the most important question that you will ever answer your entire life, and it's this third question. Do I have a personal walk with God, or do I just know about Him? Do I have a personal relationship with Jesus, or do I just know a lot of stories and facts and information about Him? See, friends, Jesus desires to be more than just one of your top admired people in your life. He desires to be more than just a person who says, oh, well, he's got some moral lessons that I can learn from. No, he deserves to be your Lord and your Savior. There are many people who know a lot about Jesus. Maybe even here in this room right now, you know the stories, you know the information, you can quote scripture, you know about Jesus, but you have never trusted him as your personal Lord and Savior. Friends, Jesus offered his life to become your Lord and Savior, not just your friend, not just your teacher, not just your master, but that you would dedicate, you would surrender your life to him. He deserves first place in your life. So I pray that this information, this knowledge, that it leads to a deeper, more personal walk with Jesus. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to have the opportunity to learn at your disciples' feet. Lord, to know that it was your Holy Spirit working through John who gives us these precious words that are written in the book of John. And I pray that over the course of the next few weeks and months as we journey through this book, that yes, we will learn information, we will learn more about what you accomplished and what you did and the stories and the miracles and the lives that you transformed. But it wasn't in there for us. That would just be the beginning that once we understand and we put it into context, then we will allow your Holy Spirit to transform our lives. That we will come before you with open hands saying, God, this is, it's not my life, it's yours. I give it to you. Would you shape me? Would you take my life and mold it so that I can be an ambassador of yours? Would we not waste this year that you have put before us? Lord, would we maximize every opportunity to live for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Take our life. Use it for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.